If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. turns out that America First and the American Dream emerged into American popular conversations about the same time. And at that point, I thought, OK, actually, something interesting is happening here. That was Sarah Churchwell talking about the emergence of the American Dream and America First. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. America First and the American Dream are two slogans that resonate through American history and that have been at the forefront of recent political debates in the country. The development of these two ideas has now been analysed by Professor Sarah Churchwell of the University of London for her new book, Behold America. Joining her to discuss some of the themes of the book was her fellow historian Dr Adam I.P. Smith of University College London. Here's how they got on. 
So your book, Behold America, is about two ideas, isn't it? It's about the American dream and it's about America first. Yeah. So why did you want to write the book in that way, mm. bouncing those two concepts off yeah. each other? Well, it this book really developed quite organically and serendipitously. It wasn't a book I sat down to write or a project that I had, you know, kind of firmly in my head. Um, but what happened was I... I, my previous book was about um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby, and of course that's the great novel of the American dream. And it turns out if you write a book about The Great Gatsby, you get asked endlessly to comment on the American dream. And I didn't want to just regurgitate the kind of standard line on that. And But also, while I had been working on Fitzgerald, I had kind of dug up along the way um, conversations in the national newspapers in America that made it clear to me implicitly that when they were talking about the American dream, they were talking about something that I was inferring was really rather different from what we were talking about. The context was different and the, and the assumptions they were making were different. And so this was several years ago now, I went back and I just started digging into that and reading around and trying to pull out what they seemed to be understanding the American dream to be. And I was very surprised because to a great extent, it's rather the opposite of what we think. So that was the sort of project I've been working on, but I wasn't necessarily ever envisioning it as a book. And then Donald Trump came along and his rhetoric about the American dream was really fitting into what I had been thinking about and his rhetoric about business and, um, and, the, and, and the way in which he seemed to mobilize America's cult of business was very uh, um, in, uh, part of the thinking I'd been doing. And, um, and, then it's, and then he started using America first and I thought, wait a minute, I know I've seen that. Um, and so then I went back and started digging into that. And it turns out that America First and the American Dream emerged into American popular conversations about the same time. And at that point, I thought, OK, actually, something interesting is happening here. So the core idea that you're trying to get across in this book is that the a meaning of the American Dream has changed. Drastically. And that <laughs> it's been drained of the meaning that it had in the first half of the 20th century. So. Can you talk a little bit more about the nature of that yeah, transformation? Absolutely. It's basically been flipped on its head. Um, it now means the opposite of what it was coined to express. And the, and in particular, it's important to me, and this may be less familiar to British listeners, but certainly American listeners will will understand um, the, the landscape I'm about to describe, that in among American conservative commentators and in the right-wing media in America, the there's a there's a um, an explicit argumentative, provocative assumption that uh, the American dream is antithetical to social democracy, that it is actively hostile to regulated capitalism, and the American dream and free market capitalism are one and the same, and they always have been, and to say anything else is un-American. So it came to me as, um, shall we say, a point of interest to discover that the American dream was in fact coined to articulate the need for regulating capitalism and to articulate the need for social democracy. So whatever else you may say about the American dream as a phrase, it is absolutely not inimical to the idea of social democracy or to the idea of regulated capitalism. It was about how, as to draw on the phrase you use in your book, it's about how to stop bad millionaires, not how to become one. <laughs> exactly. And um, and that really interested me, that the conversation about the American dream emerged at a time when monopoly capitalism was consolidating. It was the first Gilded Age, the age of the robber barons, which I don't have to tell you about. You know a lot more about that than I do. And the and and there was great concern um, among all Americans. And it's also important, I think, to say that the, the way that I 
researched this book was to go back to primary sources, to go back to the newspapers, look at the conversations that ordinary Americans were having. And therefore, it is, um, it's very important that it was on both the right and the left, and to understand that, that people had different answers to the questions, but there were similar questions being asked about what to do about rampant monopoly capitalism. What do you do with burgeoning corporate capitalism? And what they said was, if we let this run amok, it will destroy the American dream of justice, equality, and democracy. And actually, when you think about it, that makes a lot better sense because, of course, that is the American dream, um, what political scientists sometimes call the American creed, which is a, a, a phrase I use in the book to try to, to distinguish these older ideas that have always been there in the American political consciousness, and then this new phrase, the American dream, that was invented 100 years ago to try to protect those ideas of equality and justice. And, and what they said was rampant capitalism will, will, you know, and inequality will destroy the American dream of equality. So the term the American dream was coined to describe a set of much older ideas. Yeah. And those were ideas that had existed through the 19th century. Yeah. And you call them there, and you, you call them in the book, um, you talk about social democracy. Mm. Um, another word would be to say they're Republican mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, through the 19th century, there was a strong anti-monopoly movement. A lot of American political movements were formed around the idea that illegitimate concentrations of power were a threat to the liberty of the people. Mm. Um, and were therefore using the kind of language that you're you're discovering in the in the in the early twentieth century, but they certainly didn't call themselves social democrats no. or or a nor in a normative way would we want to think of them as social no. democrats because that wasn't their understanding of capitalism or, or the role of government. So where do you? I, I wonder how far you want to push the relationship you're asserting, yeah. showing in your book between the this more positive emancipatory idea of the American dream as about democracy rather than as about free market capitalism. How far is that really connected to something that we could call social democracy? Well, I mean, I take your point, but I also think that there's a, um, the question here, is, for me anyway, as a writer, was at what point do you, can you can you keep reminding your reader that you're talking about small R republicanism versus big R, capital R republicanism, i.e. this notion of republicanism that you're talking about, which is a much older one, which then gets renamed the Republican Party. And then all of the ideas that people have now about what they think the Republican Party has always stood for, which it didn't. It was the party of Lincoln. So it was actually the Civil Rights Party, which people forget. The Democrats, and the party of Teddy Roosevelt. And the party of Teddy Roosevelt, who was... Who was an anti-monopolist. Who was an anti-monopolist, but in the name of Republican small markets. And so, all you know, you end up having to write a, another history of America in order to just explain all of those concepts. So while I, I absolutely accept that to a certain degree calling it social democracy is a little bit anachronistic, what happens is that the American dream within 20 years is being used to describe what we would recognize as social democracy by FDR um, in and 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 the not actually FDR almost never uses it himself, but in the conversations around the New Deal, which is I think broadly social democracy as we would understand it today, the welfare state. 
So I was, I was, I suppose you could say indulging in a little bit of slippage there, but, but I saw it more as an act of translation, just to say, look, they're not identical, they're not coterminous, but we're roughly talking about the same ideas here in ways that are, again, roughly recognizable. Whereas if I start to go back into older ideas about republicanism, the whole thing starts to get, as I said, then suddenly I'm explaining Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> and then, you know, and, and since Lin-Manuel Miranda has just yeah. taken over that, I don't need to yeah, try to... That, 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 I mean, that's always a problem with writing any history. There's always... Was the history before the Where history does it begin? Exactly. Um, who were the people who started using the term American dream in the sense that they were using it in the early 20th century? Well, this was one of the things that interested me as I as I really tried to dig into it. And when you when you just use computers, the the new technology enables some really remarkable things where you can you can start to dig up very um, small and and uh, um, forgotten uses of a phrase in, in small publications by, you know, anonymous individuals. But that in and of itself is interesting. It's cultural history, it's social history. To say this is not, um, you know, great man history. It's not always the important person who has to invent the phrase. It's interesting to watch this idea of the American dream as it starts to get iterated and it just starts to emerge uh, rather organically. People just start to use it to mean something recognizably similar. And you see it start to seep across the political conversation over the course of about uh, 20 years or so. So the earliest instance I've found of the American dream used to describe a national ethos, a collective ideal in the way that we might recognize, was around 1895, uh, where it was a Republican slogan, but it was a local Republican campaign slogan. It's certainly not a, um, a dominant part of the American political discourse at that, um, at that point. But the... Um, it really starts to consolidate around 1900 to 1915. You start to see this emergent notion of a collective ideal that needs to be articulated, and there are many ways to do that. The American Creed is one of them, and it was a very it was a very popular and in many ways more powerful one at the time, more recognizable certainly. And so I felt a little bit as if I was watching, you know, kind of um, a little bit of a of a you know uh, of a of a race where you see one start to pull ahead. And the American creed had always been at the forefront of that conversation. And you start to see the American dream begin to overtake it as a way to articulate similar concepts, but to coalesce around the idea of economic inequality and the idea that economic inequality would be a specific threat to this American dream. And, it, and so it, it isn't used by any quote unquote important people, whether writers or politicians or what have you, um, until at the very earliest, I think you could reasonably make the case as a writer called Walter Lippmann, mm. who used it, uses it in his book Drift and Mastery in 1914, which was the book that established Lippmann's reputation. And he was one of the foremost public intellectuals of his day, largely forgotten now, although not entirely. He's now known as the popularizer of the phrase the Cold War. Um, it's one of the places he pops into, into history discussions. But um, he was very preeminent, and Drift and Mastery was the book that established his reputation. He uses the American dream in there, but not in a way that we would recognize. So then you start to see that that as these phrases emerge, the, um, the ideas around them continue to shift. So another way of saying this is that what I, I was sort of, I was taking what other histories of the American dream have done in flipping them around their head. Most people have traced the concept. And the concept, these ideas about free markets and about liberty and about equality and about democracy obviously go back to the origins of America. But because we didn't have the technology, you couldn't actually trace the origins of the phrase. So I said, what happens if you trace the phrase and you actually get different ideas? Mm -hmm. And it won't always be these same ideas. And, and there is something um, 
self-fulfilling and deterministic about saying, well, I'm looking for the ideas that I associate with the phrase. Well, that's actually circular logic if the phrase wasn't always used to articulate those ideas. There is, and I, I speak as someone who's used a very similar approach. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to that um, way of, of trying to understand the trying to reconstruct the way in which people in the past imagined their world through through looking at language. But would you agree that there are dangers in, in this approach as well? Of and that you know, one of them is that of course if you're looking for a particular phrase, the American dream in your case, then you know you're gonna you're gonna find it yeah. uh, somewhere. And judging the the salience mm. of the phrase can then be very difficult, can't absolutely. it? I mean, you know it's there because you can find it yeah, with the technology. Absolutely, of course. Whether people at the time were noticing it like you're noticing it is a different question. Absolutely, and I think we can both agree that obviously they weren't. Um, and absolutely, there is a risk of distorting the, the cultural narrative there by suggesting that it had a prominence it didn't have. And there's always a problem of selective bias um, in that way where, you know, I would seem retroactively to be putting an emphasis upon it that they, as you rightly say, wouldn't recognise. But... It seems to me that it's also the case that because it has the salience it has now, that it remains interesting to isolate those moments as long as we become clear, as long as we remain clear that those were exactly, as you say, small moments by anonymous people in no way consciously trying to articulate some kind of national ethos, but rather that you can start to see something very small and very organic as it begins to build. And you have to try to be... Uh, um, that's what intellectual honesty looks like, is to try to be as clear as you can that you're not claiming that there was, um, to use your word, a salience to it that it mm. didn't have. But that doesn't mean that its earliest iterations aren't important for our cultural conversation, is, mm. is I think, how I look at it. Um, let's bring America First back into this conversation, yeah. because to me, one of the really striking and original things about your book is the way in which you you play these two terms off against one another. So you've... It was risky, so I was, I'll go with striking and original. <laughs> I'll take it. You, you, you've, you, so you've, you've talked about the emergence of the idea of the American dream, the term the American dream, referring to, a, which was a, a, a political... Um, dream in in its essence um what about america first then tell us about where that phrase came from and what its reference mm. were the earliest version i found of america first was a political slogan used by the republicans in 1885 now it was used locally not as a national political party but you can find it uh, emerging and there were um ads and things you know come um come celebrate the republicans and you know and and support america first it was um it was on banners and um you know campaign buttons and that kind of thing again used by local uh, republican politicians around the turn of the century um unlike the American dream, there is a really a moment where we can pinpoint when America first emerged as, well, actually, that's not even true. We do know when the American dream emerged as, as a national catchphrase, which was later than most people think. It was in 1931 mm -hmm. um, when a, a historian called James Truslow Adams popularized it. America first emerged earlier. It was popularized by Woodrow Wilson in his uh, during his first term as president, but he was running for re-election for his second term. So he used it in a speech now known as the America First speech in 1915, and he was campaigning for re-election in 1916. And at that point, it really kind of took off as a national catchphrase. People were using it all over the place. In fact, one of the things that amused me is that um, 
Wilson's eventual Republican opponent, Charles Evans Hughes, also used America First as his campaign slogan in the same election, which is really not something you would see today. So clearly we were all for America First because both, both people were using it. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And Wilson, what did Wilson mean by America First? He was using it to try to navigate a very complicated um, political terrain between a very strong isolationist sentiment uh, in America at the time um, a strong urge toward political neutrality, which is not necessarily the same as isolationism. Um, and one of the things I explain in the book is that the the reasons for American neutrality in the First World War were much more complicated than I think um, people often appreciate. For example, the number of Irish Americans um, living in the country who were absolutely outraged at the idea of entering an alliance on be- with Britain. Um, and that when, and that was a feeling that only strengthened after 1916 and the Easter Rising. So the the idea that it was simple isolationism or that it was just Americans not wanting to get involved oversimplifies the issue. You've got German Americans, Irish Americans, you've got this, you've got, this is what happens when you have a melting pot. How do you actually negotiate that? So, but Wilson was an internationalist. Um, so what he did was he gave a speech in which he said, we, we need to put America first, but not by being last to do anything, but by being first to lead. So, um, but then he says in the speech that the way he thought America should do that is to wait and see basically the outcome of the conflict. And by putting America first, that would mean that it would be in the best position to help everyone afterwards. So it's really a way for him to try to have his cake and eat it too. And, and, and in my view, it didn't really work. The phrase took off. And all of the nuance that he wanted to inject into it got lost instantly. And it just became this kind of calling card for uh, for isolationism and neutrality. Um, At the time when 
Wilson was using that phrase, um, he was running on an election campaign in which, you know, he didn't say it, but somebody else said it, you know, he yeah. kept the man who kept us out of the war. And of course, no sooner had he been re-elected that he, 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 he brought America into the First World War. And at that point, um, America first seems to have become conflated with this upsurge of uh, wartime nationalism, which had a very nasty racial component to it, yes, didn't it? Did. It? it did. And it was one of the things that interested me was that the, it becomes jingoistic instantly um, as soon as America enters the war and America first becomes, um, they use it for, you know, uh, war bonds and for, you know, first aid drives and, and what have you. And the, but it was, it was, uh, as you say, being conflated at the same time, it was being caught up in a xenophobic conversation that was happening that is very complicated and hard to say, to explain quickly. But what happened was America first became associated with another national catchphrase known as 100% Americanism. And what 100% Americanism denoted could could shift and move, or the whole point of using those codes, as I say in the book, is so that you can kind of hide behind them and never quite be clear about what it is that you mean. And there's always some kind of polite pretext and you can claim you meant, you just meant pure patriotism when you say somebody should be 100% American. But we need to remember that this is a country that have been, we have the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution, saying that slaves are three-fifths of a person, been dominated by the so-called one-drop rule, which was how you ascertained if a person was legally, quote-unquote, Negro or not, um, which is to say legally a person or not, is whether they had one drop of Negro blood, which is to say one percent. So this notion of purity, of eugenics, eugenicist purity, was very caught up in the idea of what it meant to be American. And those two things converged at the same moment around conversations about America first. So 100% Americanism, which could mean 100% patriotism or people could claim that that was what it meant, started being a way to say that German Americans were not 100% American, they were only 50-50 Americans. And could you really trust them? And that got conflated with ideas about African Americans being hyphenate and German Americans being hyphenate. And none of them are really pure Americans. And what are really pure Americans? And the implication in a lot of these conversations very strongly was that the really pure, the only pure Americans are white Americans. At the same time, just to complicate things further, the KKK was on the rise. So the KKK had um, first emerged after the American Civil War in 1860. Well, it this, when the Civil War ended in 1865, it emerged around 1866, 1867, but it was quickly, uh, um, it was killed off really by um, federal forces, which people forget as well. And then it reemerged in 1915 with the, um, the production of Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffiths film. And at that point it was declared, uh, rekindled, I mean, in fact, um, I always forget his name because I block it out because he makes me so angry, but the terrible colonel who lit the fire on Stone Mountain and declared that the Ku Klux Klan was reborn. And they declared themselves for America first and for 100% Americanism very early on. So all of these ideas got tangled up very quickly. And basically, you could use either phrase as a pretext to express any, any number of xenophobic or racist or nativist ideas. And that's exactly what they started doing. When uh, Donald Trump uh, came on the scene and started using the phrase America first, there were quite a few people, um, you were possibly one of them in The in the Guardian, I don't remember, who, who immediately pointed out that uh, the term America first was particularly associated with the campaign to keep the United States 
out of the Second World War. I was one of those and, people. <laughs> uh, and uh, that America First movement, the America First Committee, the most famous person associated with it mm. was the aviator Charles Lindbergh, who mm. was the first man to fly across the Atlantic and after whom a dance was named and who was the most <laughs> popular... I forgot uh, the Lindy Hop. How did the Lindy, Lindy Hop, Hop not make I it into my book? I don't think it makes it into my book. It doesn't yeah. make it into my book. Must revise. Uh, that'll be for the second edition. <laughs> yeah, it really does you back in doing the Lindy Hop because you've got to keep permanently in a very odd position. Um, anyway, we digress. But Charles Lindbergh was was a major, major celebrity, not just in the in the in the twenties and thirties, not just in the United States, but but around um, but around the world, mm. and certainly in this country, as well. Um, and he lent his fame and his name to this movement, which, as you document in in your book, um, was. Um, straddled to, to put it it is most polite mm -hmm. it, it it straddled a very difficult line between <laughs> the argument that the united states should keep out of the war for for self-interest which could possibly be principal reasons and a neo-nazi or nazi sympathy mm. um and a and a and a sympathy for the nazis um, and the America First Committee was closely associated with the German-American Bund, which was overtly pro-German and flew swastikas. Um, so that moment of the use of the term America First, um, which was the most famous moment, you um, argue in your book that that was a kind of logical progression of the term uh, from the way it had been used in the preceding 20 or 30 years. It didn't come from nowhere. And when people were using the term America first in the late 30s, when Lindbergh was using it, he knew what he was doing. Exactly. And the racial connotations were and the anti-Semitic connotations were always there. Always there. And everybody that's knew that. Point. And everybody implicit. knew it. It was a dog whistle, right? And that's exactly my point. So you get people saying things like, I can't stand, you know, for the people who are opposed to the AFC, the America First Committee, you get people writing into their papers saying, I can't stand all of this America First 100 percent American stuff. And they say it is anti-Semitic. They say that at the time. They knew it. This isn't, you know, us as, as historians going in and, and, you know, correcting the naive or racist people of the past. They were well aware and they were fighting these battles themselves. Um, and the what what surprised me as I was beginning to, to really try to trace the evolution of America first was the degree to which it was associated with both the Klan and fascism much earlier than I had thought. And that there are, when, if, it, if people remember, Mussolini was elected in 1922, and that's when the word fascism enters, the, uh, actually really about 1921 when he comes on the political scene, that the word fascism starts to enter the American political conversation. What is this fascism thing? What's Mussolini all about? And I was really struck by how often um, people would explain Mussolini in terms of the KKK and explain the KKK in terms of Mussolini. So I found multiple instances of people just saying, well, you know, the KKK is basically 100% Americans, but for Italy. Or, you know, the KK, uh, I mean, fascism is 100% Americans, but for Italy. Or if you want to understand Mussolini, it's basically America first. Or if you want to know what the Klan is, it's basically Mussolini, but in America. And they kept explaining them in terms of each other and very quickly saying America first is American fascism. Um, and at that point, American fascist movements self-identified as Group, groups calling themselves, I mean, American fascists, 
also began to spring up. They were in sympathy with Mussolini, but they weren't necessarily his followers. They weren't necessarily Italian-Americans, although there were those as well to further complicate things. So that really surprised me. And then it surprised me the degree to which that idea of, um, of America first, um, as people watched the rise of fascism, as people uh, um, watched the rise of the KKK, that that idea of America first remained associated with these ideas and it never went away for very long. It was a, to, to go back to your point about the risk of distorting the conversation by giving phrases a salience they might not have had. What surprised me was the degree to which America first had a much greater salience in the 20s and 30s than I had ever appreciated. It was absolutely front and center in the national conversation in ways that you can tell not just from the number of times it was used, but from things, simple things like readers writing into their local paper going, I'm so sick of this phrase, America first, which gives you a sense that it must be everywhere. So, in the, and then in the early 30s, as, as Hitler was taking hold, um, group, explicitly anti-Semitic groups in America that, again, defined themselves as like America's number one anti-Semite and, you know, kind of flying the flag for being anti-Semitic. There was one man who founded a group called America First Incorporated with an exclamation mark um, afterwards who um, made the news in 1935 for calling for a pogrom in America and for a massacre of the Jews. So it's really ugly stuff. And he named his organization America First Incorporated. That's 1934. 1935. So when in 1940, the AFC that then became associated with Limburgers, that's only six years later. And the, um, the the James M. True example, the America First Incorporated, uh, that made Time Magazine. I mean, that was that was not a kind of isolated little thing in Montana that I happened to pull up and say, well, Limburg must have known of it. No, it was in the national press. People saw that this was happening. There were references to James True's anti-Semitic America First Incorporated in the New York Times over and over again. So this was part of a national conversation. Of course they were aware of it. I think it's... One of the valuable things about your book is that it does remind people or perhaps make people aware for the first time of how very strong fascist movements were in the United States yeah. in, in, in the 1930s. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's something that I've come across in various contexts over, over, over the last few years and, and, it's, and it's very easily for, forgotten that people were very, very preoccupied. Of course, the, you know, the, the, un the notion of un-American yeah. affairs... The, the threat, the subversive threat was exactly. from was from It didn't start with right. McCarthy. No. It did not start with McCarthy. Um, let's just talk about the the relationship then between these these two terms. Mm. Let's sort of bring them together after mm. first having talked about the American dream and now about um, America first. I mean, the complicating thing, there are many complicated, you're dealing with a, with a, with a, with a, with a very uh, tricky <laughs> subject here. But the people using the term America first, let's just take Lindbergh, um, were also using the term the American dream. I mean, Lindbergh, the embodiment of the American dream. I mean, I haven't done the, the word searching and research myself, but I mean, imagine you, you wouldn't have any shortage of articles about Lindbergh describing him as the embodiment of the American dream. Not or... in the 20s, because the phrase wasn't <laughs> yeah, popular right. yet, right? So not quite, but okay. yes, but yes, he embodies so the concept. He embodies the concept of the American dream. But some of the, but the, the language was being used by the same people, right? I mean, uh, and and Donald Trump, to go back to the place where you start, I mean, he has his, I mean, he uses the term, the American dream. He obviously doesn't use it in the sense that you identified having Strange been used when it was first <laughs> used in the 20th century. 
So it's not as if these are warring terms in the sense that there's one camp in American history who are the American dreamers and there's one camp in American history who are the American firsters. It would be very nice if it were so because we'd be able to trace these yeah. movements very clearly. <laughs> yeah, history's not that simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so is there a sense in which the... Um, I'm, I'm so I'm wondering about the nature of this relationship, and I'm wondering if, as the America first, were the America firsters, in some sense, responsible, in your view, for the transformation, you might want to say, subversion of the term the American dream. So those who were drawn to the ideas of America first, mm. which is to say, a kind of racially defined. Nationalism, uh, crypto neo fascism, um, were those people in some sense consciously retooling the American dream to make it a, a usable idea for them? Um, I don't think so, at least not in the beginning. They may have seen later that they could do that, or, or intuited later that they could do that. But I think it really, um, it, it where the and as you say, I mean, it, it, in some sense, one of the risks of my book is that is that I, I give the impression that these two things can be cleanly distinguished. I do think they each represented a hundred years ago a, a, a certain strain or argument in American thinking that is still there, and it is interesting that they could be found in opposition, although in many other instances they the water is much more muddied than that. Where I see the real um, shift and the real hinge on this is about the question of libertarianism. So the emergence of libertarianism as a political movement, as a quasi-political movement in the in the 40s, um, which is when you know the 40s and early 50s, which is when it's usually identified. Again, I found it being used earlier in the context of the American dream than I had expected to find it, and I think that anti-government or small government strain in America. Um, what you that's where America first and the American dream can converge intellectually. And and I don't think that to have that kind of libertarian small government um, value system necessarily means that you are a white nationalist, but it is unmistakable that there were an awful lot of them who did or were. Um, so I don't so I wouldn't say that it was consciously hijacked or anything like that. I would say rather that libertarianism or the notion of liberty more broadly was the hinge on which the whole thing swung. And the American dream, when in, when it got used um, in the Second World War as, in, in, so we said earlier that it was used in the First World War to articulate um, patriotic nationalism, jingoism um, during the war movement. In the Second World War, it was used to talk about the American dream was what we were going to Europe to protect, which was liberty and democracy. And that notion of liberty as opposed to fascism became the thing that, that started to switch the American dream away from um, a notion of a welfare state or that, 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 it, was, that it was in some way talking about uh, a social construction of America and rather that it was going, that it was simply, more simply, there to protect the idea of liberty itself, and that converges with America first. But I wouldn't say that one causes the other. I think they're just that there are these huge ideas moving through the American political and cultural landscape, 
and the phrases start to just kind of, as I say, they kind of hinge and pivot with the prevailing cultural attitudes. Um, your book, uh, the, the the book is about the first 40 years of, mm. the, of, the, of, the, of the 20th century. At least implicitly, you're offering a different chronology about the course of American politics in the 20th century mm. from that with which many people are probably more familiar. So the, the more familiar chronology is that the turning point is in the late 60s uh, with the rise of the modern conservative movement, with, perhaps with Barry Goldwater in 1964. Um, what you're saying, it seems to me, is that the bigger change happened, I guess, during, at the end of the Second World War. Mm. Uh, I felt slightly sorry, I have to say, for poor old Harry Truman, who's kind of fingered in your book <laughs> as being the culprit. No. I didn't say that. I very clearly did not say that. I very explicitly said, obviously, he didn't create this. No, he didn't. He didn't. But you, 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 you um, quote a speech in which he transforms FDR's four freedoms, which were freedom from, uh, which were, help me out, freedom, freedom of speech, of, freedom, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. And he switches those last two, two into freedom, freedom of, enterprise. of enterprise, which. Um, is is perfect for your thesis because he's clearly then mm. slipping in the notion mm. of free markets mm. as transcending the implication of freedom from want and freedom from fear is that somebody has to step in and stop people exactly. being frightened about what's going to happen if they have a heart attack and can't afford their healthcare bills. Yeah. Um, so the, the key moment of change in American history then is just after the Second World War. And that seems to me to be quite an interesting and a, an original perspective? I think I would say, and maybe this is just because of speaking about my my own research expertise, if I can call it that, um, is I would be more comfortable saying that that's how I read the great shift in American culture in the 20th century rather than in American history, if that's a distinction that's worth making. Um, now, of course, they're <laughs> hugely intertwined, but I think that the the cultural conversation, I do think, started to change at that point. And these ideas about what it is that we take to be self-evident, um, about what we think are what we think the nation stands for, that idea of a collective ethos or collective ideal that I've been talking about, those undeniably started to change at that point. And and I'm certainly not blaming Harry Truman, which would be foolish indeed, but simply saying here's a moment that we can identify where this gets articulated in an influential way. And that phrase, freedom of enterprise, in fact, I show that the, the arguments about enterprise are, are preceding that, but that, that that phrase, freedom of enterprise, is unquestionably influential. And again, um, speaking of the, the, um, the ideas about the American dream now, many, many people will tell you the American dream is freedom of enterprise, that those, those two ideas are basically coterminous. And, and that, I think, is a, is, an is, a, is a cultural shift with incredibly profound implications. And I simply wanted to rediscover the importance of that movement, cultural movement, I mean. I don't think that that in any way um, disputes or, or um, even necessarily complicates our basic understanding of the shift in, in Republican conservative ideas with Goldwater and, and Nixon. Um, I don't think any of that becomes less true. I just think we see another turning point here earlier and that we can start to trace a different kind of evolution of cultural ideas if we look at it this way. That was Sarah Churchwell 
in conversation with Adam I.P. Smith. Sarah's book, Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream, is out now in the UK, published by Bloomsbury. And in the US, it's set to be published this October by Basic Books. And you can also read a version of this interview in the current issue of BBC World Histories magazine. Look out for it in all good retailers or find out more at historyextra.com. And Sarah is going to be one of the speakers at this year's History Weekend events, which are taking place this October. Find out more details at historyweekend.com. OK, well, we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we'll be returning on Monday to discuss the Cambridge spy ring. Do join us for that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.